Hello, everybody, on episode four today of the podcast History Does You, we're going to be discussing um, the fall of the Roman Empire um, to conclude our third part of our Roman Empire series. Um, in addition, we have our first interview of the podcast, which I'm super excited uh, for you guys to listen. Um, it's an interview with Dr. Frank Russell, where we discuss uh, the Roman Judean War and um, kind of the legacy of that war and the uh, counterinsurgency tactics that are employed by the Romans and really kind of just an overview of Roman occupation and assimilation really in general. Obviously, this specific war relates more to the previous episode uh, where we discussed kind of the height of the empire and the Pax Romana, but I still definitely want to include this interview um, in this series because I think it's super interesting. Um, and I definitely look forward uh, to you guys listening to that because, A, you don't have to listen to me for the entire time. Um, so I'm super excited um, for you guys to listen to the, that. Um, in addition, so we're going to, we, uh, to recap the last episode, obviously, um, the Pax Romana and the Roman Empire was the, um, really the start of the golden age of the Roman Empire from really around the reign of Augustus, um, to the reign of Marcus Aurelius. I can't pronounce these Latin names. Um, and really it's after his reign that the Roman Empire starts a very steady decline, um, really from 200 CE all the way to 476 CE when the um, city of Rome is sacked by barbarians, which many consider the end, end point of the Western Roman Empire. Um, however, there is the Eastern Roman Empire that morphs into the Byzantine Empire, which ultimately survives until around 1500 when the Ottoman Empire destroys them uh, finally. So obviously the Roman Empire is a unified state ceased to exist really around the third century CE when it sort of split um, and there was internal war. But we're going to start with the crisis of the third century, uh, which is the period between 200 CE to around 300. Um, and in this case, the rising Sassanid Empire, which was an empire that took over from the Parthians, inflicted three crushing defeats um, in the eastern part. Um, and this really led to territorial loss in modern-day Armenia and Mesopotamia and along the Levant. So really, other, I mean, among other disasters uh, were repeated civil wars, um, barbarian raids and invasions across the frontier. Um, in addition, the Romans officially abandoned the province of Dacia um, in 271 CE. Um, in addition, there was another civil war uh, from 260 CE uh, to 273 CE where the Roman Empire split into three with the Gaelic Empire in the west, um, the Palmyrene Empire in the east, and a central Roman rum state. Um, obviously, this doesn't really work out. Um, so really, this period is marked heavily by civil war. Um, by barbarian invasions, and there was also a large plague called the called the Plague of Cyprian. Obviously, medical practice in this time was not as advanced as 
obviously today. So if you were to get a disease that would be pretty easy to recover from and get medication from today would almost like certainly kill you um, in this period of time. So that had a large impact as well. Um, the empire was, however, able to survive the crisis of the third century um, by re-gearing its economy towards um, really defense So rather than offense. So it was re-fortifying the part, um, re-fortifying the frontier as well as um, retraining its armies um, to rely more on defense rather than offense. Um, however, the survival came at the price of a more centralized and bureaucratic state during the empire. So really, in order to kind of govern such a large piece of land, there had to be almost separate entities operating on its own. So although the empire was united in principle, there were splits um, really among the um, among various uh, commanders and political appointees who kind of led different uh, factions across the empire. So another interesting development um, in the fourth century is um, the empire really converting the Christianity under Constantine the Great. Um, so this was again, the empire again split into a uh, another civil war um, where the... Um, Again, there was a split between different um, factions within the empire. Obviously, under Constantine, uh, was able to reunite it, but he, I think it was it was a battle um, uh, right outside of Rome at the Battle of the Milvan Bridge, I believe. I don't recall the exact year, but he received what he believed to be a vision from God. Um, so he pretty much converted the Christianity on the spot as well as his army. So they're, he's, they're able to win this battle and in effect end the civil war um, and really become, and really the from that point on, the uh, empire becomes Christian and the religion of Christianity begins to spread across the empire. So this is kind of where obviously the religion of Christianity starts um, beforehand in the Levant and obviously with the birth of Jesus um, in modern day uh, Bethlehem or in Bethlehem, yes. Um, and it really at first the Romans kind of prosecuted the Christians and uh, Judaism in general. Um, but it's kind of interesting that later on a Roman emperor becomes a Christian and goes on to spread Christianity throughout the area it's it controlled. So this is kind of what leads to Western Europe becoming a Christian state, which is super interesting to see. Um, obviously, much later in the medieval period, the clashes between uh, Western Christian Europe and obviously the Muslim Middle East. Um, so really, that's where the roots of Christianity really rely on spreading. It relied heavily on the Roman Empire, which is, I think, a super interesting thing, uh, specifically because the empire... Um, prosecuted and treated uh, Christians pretty harshly um, in the when it first uh, developed. Um, yeah, so this wasn't necessarily an overnight thing. Um, it was really more of a tolerance, and obviously it's under Constantine that um, Christianity becomes more ingrained in the um, culture. So it's after, I believe... Um, Constantine, he has a son named Constantinus II, um, who's able to, again, um, 
more unified the empire throughout um, the 300s. Um, but again, uh, the tribes in Germany were becoming more populous and more threatening. Um, and obviously, even though the Rhine River is a pretty good defensible barrier, it still was hard to defend such a long um, frontier. So when the tribes were able to invade um, and launch raids, it was really more um, really like once they were able to get a substantial amount of forces across, it was very difficult to contain. Um, in addition, these raids really um, um, in addition, these raids really hurt the economic and agricultural state, especially in Gaul and throughout the areas that they raided. Um, usually a lot of the frontier troops were at this time, instead of getting paid, they were just given land that they were to farm to themselves. So really the professionality of the army sort of declined um, in this sense that it wasn't a full-time profession. It was again, um, kind of like a Republic state that it was more like citizen soldiers. Um, and it really just became very difficult to, um, uh, control such a large uh, land and large army because you had all these different commanders and politicians sort of doing their own things and just trying to like survive within the regions uh, they were in control of. Um, so it's after the Constantines uh, that a man named Julian uh, takes over and he launched a official uh, anti-corruption drive um, throughout the empire, um, kind of seeking to restock the um, extensive, um, the treasury throughout the empire, but he also was able to win military victories specifically against the Germans who had invaded Gaul. He then launched a pretty expensive campaign against the Persians, which ended in his defeat, um, and his own death. So again, we kind of see it throughout Roman history that the Romans really struggled to counter the Eastern empires that opposed them, whether it was the Parthians or the Sassanids, um, obviously at the battle of, um, I think it was Crassus in like 53 BC, um, that the Romans first suffer a major defeat in the East. And this kind of continues to occur. So the Romans can never really conquer the Eastern empire, which I always think is interesting. I wonder if they had been able to, if they would have, it would have been easier to um, engage like diplomatically or economically, uh, like with the Chinese or India, for example, um, that's kind of an area um, again, that I really want to do a specific episode on because I, it's the, super interesting to me, the Roman interactions beyond its borders. Um, so there are two brothers, uh, the Valens that they're called, um, that took over after um, the death of Julian. And again, they kind of um, tackled different threats against barbarian attacks along the Western frontier. Um, and again, Christian or Christians um, continued to sort of be tolerated and kind of spread around um, the empire um, because the, unlike before, the Romans kind of tolerated it. So like different, um, like uh, religious leaders within Christianity were able to kind of spread the religion and kind of go around unhindered. Um, yeah, so it's... And really the late part of the fourth century in 376 um, CE to 395 CE uh, that the Romans 
really begin to get an influx of barbarian invasions, uh, mostly from a people called the Goths, who are fleeing away from the Huns. Obviously, there was a man called Attila the Hun, um, who I believe came from like Central Asia and kind of migrated, and they began to attack the various Germanic tribes who lived in the region. So they fled um, into the Roman Empire. So this influx um, was almost impossible to contain. So they were able to in exchange for, I think, giving land and um, fighting with the Romans, um, that's kind of where um, this large influx brings a lot of social stability and economic stability throughout the empire. Um, in addition, uh, the uh, Roman Empire, um, towards, I believe it's 395, um, AD that the empire officially splits between the eastern part and the western part. Um, in my opinion, the eastern part was a lot more easier to defend as opposed to the western empire because it, again, um, just in terms of borders and the, the terrain that was able to defend the eastern empire was almost easier to defend as opposed to the western empire. Um, so again, this splitting sort of Again, it splits the empire, so it essentially splits the economic um, abilities, the financial abilities, and the military abilities in half. So although it would be easier to um, um, kind of rule in a sense, it was, again, very difficult when you weren't had a unified strategy and whatnot. So... Um, so the empire split around this period into Western and Eastern, um, but a man um, named Stilicho um, kind of takes over and he attempted to um, reunify the empire. So he led different campaigns, um, both against the Eastern Romans and against the um, various barbarians who, um, again, attacked across the, whether it was against the Rhine River or in the uh, across the Alps. Um, um, this again, didn't really, where I even, so under this guy, he essentially led a bunch of different campaigns, but essentially wherever he was able to win a victory, he would have to go somewhere else because there'd be a new threat. So really it's in this period that again, the split of the empire and the influx of different, uh, leaders, and the constant civil war uh, between both the Eastern and Western Roman empires pretty much ensured that it would downfall. Um, in the period between 408 CE and 410 CE, um, it effectively ended the regular field armies. So it's kind of in this period that the Romans begin to rely heavily on mercenaries and citizen soldiers rather than the traditional professional army that the Imperial Roman army had been built on. And this is really just because, again, it was um, just a steady decline. It wasn't like there was a specific uh, event that happened that ultimately destroyed um, the empire, but it really just was... Um, kind of a steady decline. And between 405 CE and 418 CE in the Western part, um, there were different Germanic tribes that begin to, again, just cross in numbers that were impossible to contain and take different parts of the uh, uh, empire. So specifically, it's once this happens that the uh, Roman Western Romans um, abandon, obviously, modern day uh, Great Britain. Um, so again, the Romans have been there for 
pretty much around 300 years. And there's still um, Roman architecture and stuff that does exist in Britain. And I definitely, again, want to do a specific episode about um, the Romans of Britain, because I think that's super interesting as well. It's along with this that the uh, Romans lose partial provinces um, in Hispania and Gaul. Um, and this is just because, again, it became impossible to both contain um, the Germanic tribes who were crossing the Rhine River and also just the internal unrest that came with that influx, um, as well as just the inability to like rule an area that was just constantly in um, turmoil. Um, so it's actually interesting. In 418 CE, there's a formal settlement um, between the Western Romans and their Germanic tribes to um, permanently give the these tribes land within the uh, Western Roman Empire. Uh, and pretty much in exchange um, for land, um, they had to send uh, people to um, fight against the Huns and the Asian tribes that were migrating um, across Western Europe. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I think the fall, it, again, I won't say that the empire um, necessarily fell because of a specific event. I think it was just kind of a, just a long decline and in inability to defend such a large area of land. And especially because of civil war, um, which obviously in the Pax Romana had been relatively limited. And then obviously after 200 CE, civil wars happened pretty much every couple of years um, to the point where it became really just unsustainable. Um, and obviously one of the more famous barbarians that comes along is Attila the Hun. also want to do a specific episode on him. Um, he led kind of a campaign of terror throughout the Western Empire, um, invading Gaul in 451 CE. Uh, with a pretty ginormous army. Um, and then he proceeded to um, um, fight throughout Gaul and Italy. However, he unexpectedly died in 453 CE, so he never really actually took the city of Rome. Um, but again, this definitely contributed to the uh, insecurities uh, throughout the empire. So obviously, the problem of splitting the... Uh, these provinces to the Germanic tribe made it very difficult to actually uh, administer. So by splitting all these different states, they would only unite under kind of a common um, goal, which was, again, to um, fight against these different um, empires and such. Um, so obviously the year 476 um, CE um, leads to the sacking of Rome um, by, I forget who did it, but regardless, like for many historians and stuff, or I believe it was um, a Germanic tribe called the Ostrogoths, which um, sacked Rome um, and eventually permanently occupied the Italian peninsula um, for, I think it was around 300, 400 years. Um, and it's interesting, despite this, the Roman Senate still continued to exist in some capacity um, and would kind of be under the rule of the various barbarian chieftains. Um, but again, it's believed that the Roman Senate as an institution um, disappeared around the 7th century CE. So... 
Um, it's really after the Roman Empire falls that the West becomes split between all these different uh, Germanic tribes, um, while the Eastern Roman Empire continues to survive. Um, and I think the legacy of the Roman Empire is that not only was it just, again, a political state that really just um, fought um, with violence, um, but it was just in a very elaborate civilization um, in the Mediterranean um, that really advanced uh, manufacturing, trade, architecture, um, spreading uh, literacy, law, um, and international kind of language and science and literature. Um, even though like the Western barbarian has lost much of these like higher cultural practices, these were kind of redeveloped in the medieval uh, in the medieval era in some ways. Um, so obviously the fall of the Western Roman Empire leads into what is called the Dark Ages, um, which again, it's sort of this decline in cultural advancement and architectural advancement and all this different stuff, um, which I think is super interesting. Again, I think we're gonna do a specific episode on the Western Ro or on the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, yeah, so again, this is going to conclude our um, Roman series, um, and we're definitely going to segue into the uh, interview, which is super interesting. Again, this is more relevant to the previous episode and like the Pax Romana, but again, I definitely wanted to include this as a part of our series because I think it was uh, super interesting. Uh, yeah. He's a professor at Transylvania University and teaches history and classics. His work includes information gathering in classic, classical Greece and several other shorter pieces on Greek and Roman military history. He also researches military and political intelligence, counterinsurgency, and frontier studies. And he received his PhD from UCLA in 1994. So, Dr. Russell, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Bradley. Yeah, so just to start off, um, what specifically kind of interests you about ancient Rome and uh, ancient history in general? I've always been interested in the way the Romans seemed to make a empire eventually into something like a state, where they kind of interact with local cultures, and there's a almost like a dialogue between those cultures, where there's a Roman template that kind of becomes adopted, and yet people can still have some of their own heritage too. So I find it fascinating to wander through the ruins of the Roman Empire, um, whether in North Africa or the Middle East or in Europe, and, and see some kind of familiar iconography that blends in with the local culture. So I, I'm very impressed with the way that they designed things, not just architecturally, but also socially, and to make it work with such an enduring imprint on the people that they encountered. Yeah, I mean, it is impressive. They were able to last as long as they were, and still have an impact today. So going off of that, uh, what are some of the challenges that you encounter in your research in trying to study ancient Rome and ancient history in general? Sources, uh, the paucity of sources, which in some ways is a disadvantage. In some ways, it's, it's, I hate to say this, almost an advantage. The modern American historian is presented with a deluge of evidence. The problem is to filter um, and kind of get a a topic that's manageable in terms of the amount of data that you have to have to answer it. In the ancient world, we have so little evidence, and it's disparate. It's scattered through time. And so you're working with a jigsaw puzzle, kind of like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle with 
50 pieces, 50 pieces which may or may not match. And so it's hard to put it together. Um, it's a fun exercise sometimes as well as a frustrating one. Awesome. So we'll just shift um, to the Roman-Judean War. So some background for our listeners. The Romans had kind of been involved in the region as early as a couple of years before uh, Jesus was born. But, and I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, uh, firmly came under Roman um, influence after the decline King Herod died, I believe in 6 CE. But um, going off this, where do the roots of this revolt come from? Do you think it was a recent development or were there tensions uh, from when the Romans first got involved in the region? My take would be it became an issue even before the Romans got there. So um, there's a, um, depending on your version of the Bible, it's either the book of Maccabees within the Bible or it's in the Apocrypha. Um, and it tells you the story of the first Hanukkah, which is how the Romans dealt with, excuse me, how Antiochus IV, who was the, the Seleucid king over the region who had just conquered the areas back from the Ptolemies, was trying to kind of superimpose a cosmopolitanism in the area that was kind of Hellenic. And the Jews themselves, some of them adapted to the cosmopolitanism, and some of them rebelled against it. And so a lot of the same issues that are coming up much later with Herod um, and certainly when it exploded in, in the 60s and then again in the second century, are how do you be a traditional Jew? What does that mean? And what does that mean with your interaction with an external exterior power? The, the Roman involvement was – so in the case of the um, Maccabee Revolt, um, it's decisive in terms of a turn in history. The, the Maccabees break off into another typical Hellenistic fragmented kingdom. Um, and so the dynasty that, that's set up there, in fact, persists until um, the Herodian age because Herod is um, operating in the north against some of the people who are still adherents to it. Um, but um, the Roman involvement will come even before that, excuse me, even before Herod, when Pompey comes into this area in the 60s. Um, and they're trying themselves to establish a relationship um, with the peoples in this region, with Rome as the external, um, shall we say, patron of the various factions and the various ethnicities in this area. So it begins with that. They start to work eventually with Herod. Um, Herod picks the wrong side in a lot of wars um, between Romans and the Roman Civil Wars, um, but eventually comes out well with Augustus, and that keeps him in power. So Herod is, has his own problems, and Herod is a, a demand. He is within the context of a Jewish culture, but not accepted by all the Jews. And he is not universally loved. Um, there are people who support the former dynasty, the Hasmonean. There are people who don't like him at all uh, for their own reasons. Um, there are people who do back him. And his backing is difficult because he's trying to straddle two worlds and try to avoid, if you will, something like the Maccabees. So he can be pleasing to the Romans on the one hand and, and pleasing to various segments of his own population on the other. Um, so the Roman conflict in this area is, is yeah, it's a gradual one. They work well with Herod, um, with the Tetrarchy after him. Uh, they respond fairly coherently to um, Jewish interests and Jewish complaints, but eventually you see a growing Roman presence in terms of um, both commanders of auxiliary units and, and kind of civil governors coming into this area to uh, patch things up. But the way the Romans usually like to rule, and this is kind of at the heart of the problem here, is through client kings, cl 
compliant rulers, um, elites in local areas who can manage their own people on the one hand, but want a relationship with the Roman state on the other. And so the Romans kind of expect, expect the, um, the high priesthood, which has been important um, in the ruling of Judea since the time of the Hellenistic kingdoms, to respond to them as their, um, their clients. And the high priesthood, in turn, has a hard time managing its own position vis-a-vis the successors of Herod, vis-a-vis the, the different factions within the, um, the Jewish population. So it's a complicated situation that the Romans are coming into. Yeah, that's super interesting. So we have open warfare breakout in 66 uh, CE, and then the establishment of a provincial government in the Jerusalem. Uh, my question is, who are the makeup of the Jews leading the revolt? Was it led by common folks? Was it led by people with money and influence? Or was it led by uh, different like religious leaders uh, in the religion of Judaism? That's an excellent question, and it's a difficult problem for the Jews because a lot of the initial leaders of the revolt seem to be charismatic figures who are not necessarily part of the elite. Um, but the revolt, once it starts to occur, is immediately hijacked, if you will, um, by the elites who essentially realize that when things have broken with Rome, and they don't want it to break with Rome, but when things do, um, they're between a rock and a hard place. If they lose, um, they are in trouble. And if, if they win, they may be able to salvage it, but their problem there is they don't necessarily have legitimacy um, in terms of a lot of the segments of their own population. So the elite tend to hijack leadership of the revolt uh, from people with more military experience and not necessarily high social status. It happens pretty quickly right after the initial, after the initial victories. Yeah, so in general, in the early years, do you think the Romans underestimated the capabilities of the Jewish rebels? I think certainly Cestius did, um, and I think that's a fair statement. I think once it began, they took it seriously. Um, when you look at the force that Vespasian takes in, it's not a trivial one. Um, he comes down with three legions plus auxiliary corps. Um, and so that the Romans do take it seriously once the initial defeat happens. And this is typical Roman uh, in the sense that the issue becomes different after the defeat. And the issue is a restoration of Roman reputation, Roman face. And they take that issue very seriously indeed. So clearly the defeat of the Romans at the Battle of Bassoron, um clearly like changes towards the rebellion. And in what way do you think it really changes? Is it an attitude that they need to change their tactics or do they need to bring more forces in or is it um, something else? Both in some ways. Um, I would argue that the tactics in the, under the Julio-Claudian emperors, the, the first emperors up through Nero, um, essentially tried to have what we call in modern terms a hearts and minds kind of doctrine, a coin doctrine, a counterinsurgency doctrine that sought to engage the peoples of Judea or the Jews generally throughout the empire by kind of recognizing the religious differences and to some extent accommodating them. I'm not talking about a, a completely enlightened policy, but I'm talking about one which is at least making an effort to minimize friction. And so when Vespasian comes in, um, he comes in with an attitude that that era is over. Even though he's working for Nero when he first comes in, um, the issue becomes less one of 
accommodation and more one of a rebellion. Romans see rebellion as differently from war. Uh, they see it as a breach of fides, a breach, a breach of their of trust, and and so they respond to it much harsh, more harshly. So therefore, the policy becomes much more harsh. So it is that, and it's also, as you just mentioned, it's a question of scale too, um, because the Romans do commit a serious military force at this time. They take men from Egypt, they take men from Syria, because the Roman presence um, initially in this area is pretty small. It's um, if you think of you know, five um, infantry cohorts and, and one cavalry ally, that's not a lot of people to control all of that area. So there's a massive increase in the number of people that come in. Interesting. So follow-up. In your research, did you come across an event or battle that you consider to be decisive or to ensure that the Romans would quash the rebellion, or neither because you would consider this um, more of a counterinsurgency campaign where decisive battles don't necessarily matter? Thank you. Um, both. Um, one, that there, there is not a decisive battle because the, for, the conclusion to the revolt was foregone before it ever happened. Uh, the Jews did not seriously have the power to take on the full might of the Roman state. End of story. Um, this is not like Arminius. This is not like the Germans um, where the Romans are going to withdraw from this area. There's too much at stake here. So the, the Jews are going to lose. It's a matter of when and a matter of how. Um, because of the scale of the opponents. So I don't think there's a battle that's decisive. I don't think Ascalon is decisive in the sense that there's nothing that was going to change. I don't think Jatapa was decisive. I don't think the Galilean change was decisive. But going back to your, your point, I think, elsewhere, the nature of the counterinsurgency war is, is very cleverly laid out by Vespasian um, to isolate, to kind of systematically quash resistance in a... Um, a structured and intelligent way. And so that is the key to this, the isolation, uh, the prevention of the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora from getting involved, the prevention of the Parthians from being involved, the, the seeking to stop it spreading, and then once it's contained, to operate a straight, not a conventional, by our point of view, but a straight counterinsurgency operation once you got from there. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned the Parthians. Obviously, the Parthian Empire was the big opponent uh, in the east to the Roman Empire. Um, in your research, do you think that the empire had any influence on the Jews, or did they provide uh, support, whether it was directly or indirectly, for the rebellion? That is a lovely question, and I wish I could answer it on the basis of evidence. I can only answer it on the basis of context and conjecture. Um, the Parthians and the Romans, as you know, always had a little thing over Armenia. And, and that in terms of who got to determine the head of state there and who had the most influence there. So they have been in conflict over that very recently. They've just come out of a peace treaty in which they are officially not in open aggression with each other. But I think you're, you're, what you insinuate is really nice when you talk about covert aid or um, deniable aid. And it would be lovely to be able to trace that or but we don't see it in sources. What we do see is a client kingdom, a Parthia, that does get involved to some extent in allowing reinforcements to come into the revolt, which the Parthians, I suppose you could make the argument, could have prevented had they tried to police this client kingdom a little bit more strongly. Um, you do get the Parthians offer uh, eventually Titus uh, a fairly large force to help them suppress the revolt, but they do that in 70. And by 70, it's over. 
um, really, that the, the Romans are going to win. It's only a matter of time. So the Parthians may at that point be thinking, hmm, well, the Romans are probably going to look at us suspiciously. Maybe we should make a, a gesture to, to avert that suspicion. Or it could be that the Parthians never wanted to get involved in a direct confrontation with the Romans anyways, and they saw this as an embarrassment. It's hard to tell, um, but certainly the presence of, of um, Jews from Adabene would kind of imply that people are leaving covertly or with a blind eye from the Parthians to support the revolt. Certainly Vespasian tries to isolate Judea from the east um, and, and does so to prevent any Parthian reinforcements. So it's a consideration for the Romans. That's a great question. Yeah, so really the war only lasts seven years and compared to a lot of insurgency campaigns across history is relatively a short amount of time. Um, what specific counterinsurgency tactics did the Romans employ that were effective in suppressing this revolt? Terror and displacement. Um, the Romans did not take the hearts and minds approach in this revolt. Um, they stuck with the people that stuck with them. So they protect the coastal cities. They protect cities like Sepphoris that kind of stand by the Romans in this. But then they go through the countryside and they burn and they kill and they do horrible things. And so the purpose of that is essentially to, one, displace the people, uh, which is not what we usually try to do in counterinsurgency. We usually try to kind of build infrastructure um, to get the people settled. The Romans aren't interested in that, um, partly because, again, they're restoring their image. Um, partly because they recognize that insurgents are supported by local populations, particularly agriculturally, and they don't see that the locals are likely to change their minds without a reason to do so. Um, Vespasian can't afford a long-term uh, campaign here, and he can't afford it for a number of reasons. One is that you, you can't tie down three Roman legions in the backwater. You just can't. It's not worth it. Um, the type of military commitment that's required here is too much. Also, Nero is back in Rome, and Nero would be thinking, at least in the early stages, um, what is Vespasian doing? Why is he continuing to command three legions when he should be able to solve this problem? And so Vespasian risks being not only demoted, but even brought back on trial of treason um, as a potential uh, rival to Nero. So Vespasian's got some pretty big considerations that makes them want to not have this last long. And when you say you it lasts seven years, you're right in some sense, um, but most of it's over pretty quickly. And the reason why it drags out even as long as it does is because we count the end with Masada, and Masada's a mob op operation. And the other thing that drags it out is the civil wars within Rome, where Vespasian has other things to worry about than what's going on um, in Judea. So Going back to where I started from, the, what he needs to do is undercut the population support, and he does it through terror, deterrence, and he, he moves the rebels um, through their displacement into either Galilee, where he can mop it up, into the cities of Galilee, where he can take them by siege, or into Jerusalem. And when the rebels concentrate in Jerusalem, it's a disaster for them, not only because of the logistical problem they have there in a siege, uh, but also because they turn on each other. And whether that was deliberately part of Vespasian's policy or not, in terms of the internal dynamic, it certainly was part of his policy. It's easier to fight an insurgency if you can pin it down to a place rather than having it diffused through the countryside. So the tactics work well for them. Yeah, so, I mean, you mentioned the Civil War in the middle of the rebellion, which is interesting. Do you think that this rebellion, or this Civil War, even though it lasted only pretty much one year, 
Do you think this contributed to the rebellion lasting longer, or did the ascension of a new emperor see like a change in tactics or attitude towards the rebellion? Nice. Um, in a larger scale of things, I would argue that there's a change in strategy from a coin engagement, hearts and minds strategy under the Julio-Claudians um, to a different strategy under the, the Flavians, which were who were much, much more hostile to the Jewish people, um, and imposed a, um, a new template for Judaism um, in terms of how they dealt with the temple and the synagogues, which I'll get into a little bit later if you'd like. Um, so did it delay it by causing a hiatus where Vespasian and Titus were kind of making movements that were not predicated on the war in Judea? Absolutely. Um, did it protract it in the sense that Vespasian starts to adopt a wait and see? He's got to look to what the Danube legions are going to be doing in terms of the Civil War. Um, he's got to look for his own interests. And so, yes, it, it did protract it. Um, but the policy change isn't a tactical change uh, because Vespasian handles things as a result of the circumstances. And honestly, if this happened under a Julio-Claudian emperor, when a revolt occurred, that same sort of terror would work, would be applied again. Um, if I can make an analogy to the campaign in Britain under Claudius and after Claudius, he's a Julio-Claudian, he's very sympathetic to the Jews and generally sympathetic to indigenous people. Let's say, I'd say indigenous, I'm sorry, I'm talking too fast. Um, Claudius stamps out the Druids in Britain um, because he sees them as uh, hostile to the Romans, period. He doesn't try hearts and minds. So what I'm saying here is once a revolt has occurred and once a religion is associated with the revolt, it doesn't matter if it's a Julio-Claudian emperor or a Flavian emperor. They're going to deal with it in a similar way. So tactics will be similar because of that. But an overall policy shift, yes, does occur between the dynasties. Yeah, so this war is probably one of the earliest instances of seeing counterinsurgency tactics. Um, in your research, do you consider the Roman tactics uh, to be harsh, or do you think it was more complicated in the way that many people perceive the Romans and the way that they ultimately like controlled their territory? They are indeed harsh. In the context of the ancient world, they might be gentler than the Assyrians, um, but they are harsh. Um, sometimes, this is a horrible thing to say, sometimes harsh tactics are effective. Um, Alexander in Afghanistan employed kind of like a carrot and a stick. Um, he would do something like Mary Roxanne, who was an, uh, a Bactrian princess. Um, but he would also, like when his horse Bestapolis was stolen, he threatened to kill every single person in the area until he got his horse back. Well, he did. Um, but that harshness is not unknown in the ancient world. The Romans are actually really interesting in that there's an implicit counterinsurgency that they do as well, which isn't a military one. It's, um, it's a long-run hearts and minds. Let's engage the elites. Let's change the economy. Let's change the culture. And, and that is, um, I wouldn't say it's unique to the Romans, but it is, I think, a mark of their state, particularly in the imperial period, which is a long-term thing. So the problem that the Romans will have in Judea is the, the cultural conflict, um, which is behind the, which is associated with the Jewish religious cultural divide among its hardliners and its um, more cosmopolitan Jews. And so the Roman models of acculturation 
again, like the Maccabees, are working with one segment of the population, but the other one reacts against it. If I make a, may make a silly analogy, um, America tries, to, tries right now to engage with Islam in its moderate form. It tries to define Islam in its moderate form. Um, Obama's speech in Cairo being an example. America condemns Islam in its radical form, or what we call its radical form. And Islam is divided in that, and there's a tension, and it's trying to work it out right now. Uh, the Jews were divided into, well, are we going to be cosmopolitan Jews working with the Romans, the Hellenized rulers before us, or are we going to be strict adherents to the Mosaic law? And and so the long-term, what I would call the Pacific hearts and minds strategy of accommodation is not working because of an internal division within Judaism. Yeah, so to follow up on that, you mentioned some more modern examples of counterinsurgency tactics. Um, do you think the tactics the Romans employed both during the war and during their occupation can be applied to more modern case studies, or do you think that their tactics were unique to the ancient world? I hope they can't be, um, because to use that degree of terror um, is something that would be pretty bad for a modern state to do. Um, one could make the argument that the Germans tried to institute a terror like that, um, I guess, in, on the East Front in World War II. Um, it didn't work out for them if they, if that's the case. Um, if, it's, if that's an analogous case, it did not work out well for the Germans on the Eastern Front. I think it, in the long run, didn't work out well for the Romans either, because this was not the last revolt. Of course, you have the, the Kitas War, and you have, again, uh, the Bar Kokhba Revolt. So this doesn't solve things. And I think the Roman gradual assimilation process, and I think the, the other thing that I, I think that Flavians did is by destroying the temple, they redefined Judaism. And I think after the, the lifespan of the people who were alive during the revolt um, grew old and, and died, that's when their chance was um, to essentially move after 130 into a different sort of relationship, which was ultimately successful, but it was a long-term gradual one. Interesting. So it seems like in a lot of modern cases, liberal democracies struggle to engage in the counterinsurgency campaigns because it often takes the time and resources that they can't or they can't endure because I think like politics and war really go hand in hand. Do you think Rome faced some of those um, political challenges in regards to the rebellion, or was it really more of a separate case? I mean, how do you think that, like, the politics um, and war, do you think they went, you know, hand-in-hand -hand in the ancient world, or were they more separate? I think they went very much hand-in-hand. -hand. There's a lot of pressure on an emperor to be a successful military leader, and to have a long, protracted war on the frontier somewhere was not something that sold well in, in any case. So I think just like a liberal democracy encounters impatience on the part of the population, um, so too in Rome. So their reaction tends to be very harsh in the short run um, and then a little bit more coherent in the long run. Yeah, so just to uh, do some conclusion questions, how is the war remember, remembered and documented by the Romans? Interestingly enough, it isn't an important war in terms of the Roman sense of its own history, with one particular exception, which is how the first emperor, uh, the first two emperors of the Flavian dynasty used it. So Vespasian and Titus, his son, 
promoted this as you know, Judea Capta, the plunder from this comes back to Rome. They make an altar of peace. They make a lovely um, triumphal arch in which they show Roman soldiers taking the menorah from the, ta- from the temple. So there's a fair bit of propaganda on the part of the Flavian dynasts, and that does come into our sources through coins, through the arch that still stands in Rome, um, through Suetonius, who is a um, biographer of the, um, the, the, the 12 emperors of Rome, uh, the first 12. Um, so there's a little bit there, but for the most part, we don't know a lot about it because most people find it interesting if they're Roman, only because this is how the Flavian dynasty makes the transition to power. So the siege of um, Masada, which Josephus absolutely loves, Romans don't even write about. For them, it was kind of like a, just a, another operation. Um, they, they, they don't record it in their own history because it's for them not particularly important if that makes any sense. Yeah, so on the flip side, how is the war remembered and documented by uh, the people in Judea? It had a profound effect on them. And so we're lucky enough to have a source. His name is Josephus, and he's a fascinating individual. Um, Josephus was a member of the revolt. He was one of these elites sent out um, by the temple uh, cadre to kind of take commands of the the, uh, rebellion. He's sent off to Galilee. And, and finds himself up to his ears in a situation he really can't control. He eventually gets captured by Vespasian. And the tradition goes that he predicts to the emperor of Vespasian once he is interrogated after his capture um, that Vespasian will be emperor. Uh, at the point, he's just a general. And so the story is a complicated one because Josephus is trying to, to some extent, write the tragedy of his people and explain his people to a Mediterranean audience. Um, he's writing in Greek, um, not in Hebrew, not in Aramaic, not in Latin. Greek because it's um, the language of the literate in the Mediterranean. And he's uh, painting this tragedy in, in exaggerated forms, to be sure. Everything that Josephus says, you can pretty much divide by ten to get the truth. Um, but he's in an awkward situation on the other hand, because he, although as a representative of the Jewish people, he's also a traitor to them, because he goes over to the Romans. He ends up working for Vespasian and being a um, hanger-on hanger on at Vespasian's uh, court, so to speak. And so he's trying to bridge the two cultures and apologize to either to the other in some sense. And um, it's an awkward role to have. And so so that's part of the way that is remembered on the Jewish side. Certainly his, his writing about Masada is deeply influential, um, even today, uh, to Jew and Gentile alike. Um, the flip side of this is the destruction of the temple is traumatic. And it forces Judaism into trying to find alternate ways of expressing religious identity and leadership and practice. And um, it was one of my arguments, actually, and I could be wrong on this, but I think it's fascinating that Vespasian did this deliberately. In other words, by sacking the temple and destroying the temple, he removes the conservative element of Judaism. And he actually sponsors, um, in many respects, the cosmopolitan aspect of Judaism, the synagogues, if you will, the Talmudic tradition um, in in Judaism. And so it's a difficult thing for the Jews in their memory of it because there's so many different tragedies involved for them. It is a traumatic event. Um, It's repeated to some degree um, with the messianic leadership of Bar Kokhba a little bit later, um, and that's stopped down too. And so... 
it, it kind of puts paid for a long time to the notion of a Jewish homeland and the Jewish identity, it really until 1948, or in terms of the realization of that with the state of Israel. Interesting. So to follow up, what do you think the legacy of the first Roman Jewish war is? Obviously, the Romans win, and it pretty much ensures domination of the region um, for the next couple centuries. Um, do you think it had, what's the legacy first, like in the ancient world, um, and then what do you think its legacy is uh, in today? So for the ancient world, for the Romans, it's not a big deal. Um, it's essentially a restoration of order on the frontier. Um, it maintains the Roman presence there, as you say, um, but to the Romans, it was probably never particularly in doubt that that legacy would be disturbed. Um, it does, I think, in terms of Roman policy towards the Jews, then complicate what Roman policy is going to be towards Christians, because it's reinterpreted to some degree in the context of their experience of a religiously sanctioned revolt. Now, it's not that there aren't religiously backed revolts. The Batavian Revolt has a religious element in, in often um, in Northern Europe. Um, but I think there's an increased sensitivity in Rome uh, towards monotheism, in particular monotheistic religions. And Christianity will be scary uh, for that reason as a form of social and political deviance. So there's a legacy in the Roman mentality, I think, there. Um, in terms of the, the effect on the empire, again, not too much. I think in legacy on the Jewish um, people, it, it's more profound. It's the, the you know, destruction of the second temple. It's, temple. It's in some ways, it's, I wouldn't say it's like a revisiting of the Babylonian captivity, um, but it forces a crisis in the Jewish world, and the legacy of that, I think, is still enduring. Yeah, so what do you think this says about the Romans' ability to fight, whether it was against internal rebellions, whether it was against, like, Boudicca or, obviously, the Jews, or against, like, rival states such as the Parthians and Dacians? The Romans are really good at conventional warfare. They're actually fairly good at unconventional warfare, although they certainly have had defeats there, too. Um, their problem here, in my opinion, is in part predicated on the troops that they were using initially. They were using troops that were intrinsically hostile to the Jews. Uh, they were recruiting their soldiers from the Samaritans and the, um, the Gentiles of the coast, and, and they were not particularly sympathetic. So I think the Roman abilities here were in part hampered in terms of the policing action that happened before. Once the legions came in um, afterwards, um, post-74, you, you have the 10th pretenses still, um, it um, it becomes a different social or cultural recipe, um, which in the long run, I think, proves um, more stable, oddly enough. So um, the Romans have a problem with sometimes knowing the real disposition of people. So it's an intelligence problem as much as it is a military problem. So Cestius should have known better in some sense. Um, tactically and, more importantly, culturally, um, before doing what he did. And I think part of the problems that the Romans had when they fought wars in the provinces is that you have a governor, Governor Syria would be experienced, to be sure, um, but a governor in Judea, a procurator or a prefect, who doesn't know the culture well. And so their weakness is less a military tactical one and more of a strategic and intelligence one where they need to know better 
how they should fight in this particular circumstance and need to know even more how they could avoid a fight. They get better at that. Um, they start to have professional units in terms of tactical intelligence with the exploratories and the speculatories. Um, and I think the, the structure of amateurs coming in to do a professional's job um, starts to, to, to fade into a, a better system by the time you get into the second century. The Julio-Claudians are trying to work things out in, in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, and they rely a lot on uh, allies within subject or client people. And the Romans have to learn what the limits of that are, whether it's Arminius or Tacfarinus or, or the, the Jewish priesthood um, in Jerusalem. Yeah, so to conclude, what is the most interesting aspect of your research, uh, whether it's uh, in regards to the Roman-Judean War or in general when it comes to looking at counterinsurgency or political intelligence uh, in the ancient world? Uh, two things for me that really got me. Uh, one is that counterinsurgency um, is a varied entity in its application. So just because you're talking about Romans and Jews doesn't mean that Roman, every Roman is going to think or act, conduct policy in the same way. So one of the things that came out for me particularly in the study of this is the shift from the Julio-Claudians to the Flavians. Um, variation within the Julio-Claudians even. Uh, so Gaius or Caligula is not the same as Claudius. So when we tend to look back to the ancient world, from our vantage point, we look at generalities. Uh, we look at simplifications. And things are actually much more subtle and complicated. So if you take, let's say, American presidents like Trump or Obama or, or, or uh, W. Bush, um, there are differences in terms of how they see the world and how they make policy in the world. There are constancies, too. I mean, NATO is still existing under all of these um, presidents. Um, but there are variations. And so when you look back at the application of counterinsurgency policy in antiquity, you've got to consider not just it being Roman or non-Roman, but which Roman and, and which dynasty and, and what are the influences in it. So that would be one. And again, to come back to that point that fascinates me most, the idea that Romans manipulate other people's religions deliberately, whether it's the, the Gallic Druids versus the British Druids, whether it is the, um, the, the Jews of the temple versus the Jews of the synagogue, um, where they make actions that can have lasting effect in terms of religion, affect even into the modern day, um, that to me blows my mind because a lot of our modern constructions, and we see it very easily in, let's say, the federal architecture of the United States or the, the laws to some extent of the United States, so the political forms of the United States, we consciously borrow from the Romans. But there are some things that they did that shape us unconsciously, uh, like our calendar system, why we call the ninth month of the, the year September without even thinking about it, the seventh month is what we call it. Um, our attachment to um, of Christmas on the Feast of Sol Invictus, and a lot of these things that uh, we do unconsciously that the Romans have defined for us boggles my mind um, when I think of it as linked to a deliberate act on their part uh, for a cultural transformation. Um, so that's what I find most especially fascinated about the Romans and about the Roman reaction to the Jewish revolt. They're not just there to beat it militarily, and they do that horrifically, but they're there to alter what it means to be a Jew so it is something more accommodating to Roman rule, which to my mind is frightening and fascinating. So there you go. Yeah, so just as uh, we almost hit the 40-minute mark, is there anything else you think 
or that you would like to add, whether it's in regards to the Roman Jewish War or um, your research into the ancient world or anything else our listeners should know? Um, one last thing, um, because I find it curious, too. Um, right after the revolt in Judea, uh, Vespasian ordered the destruction of the Jewish temple at Leontopolis in Egypt. And so there are some people who would say, and Josephus was one of them, um, our ancient source, our Jewish source, our Hellenized Jew source, um, on the war, that Titus destroyed the temple by accident. But I think that's wrong. And I think that's wrong because, uh, well, a couple of things. One, I've walked at the base of the temple, and there are blocks there that are the size of a, a dining room table. And those blocks weren't tossed over by a Roman soldier in a fit of anger. Those blocks were knocked off the top with the pulley system and levers. You don't toss a 10-ton block um, when you're mad sacking a city. Um, that's deliberate destruction. And two, the fact that the destruction of the Temple at Leontopolis um, was done as well. The Temple at Leontopolis is an echo of the Temple um, at Jerusalem that was set up by the Jews living under the Ptolemies when Ptolemaic Egypt had lost Jerusalem. Um, and so Vespasian's decision to do that is, is not something done in anger. It's done as a point of policy to avert something. And so, again, that notion of um, deliberate change. I find the Roman presence in, in Israel fascinating, um, especially when you go to Caesarea Maritima on the coast or you go to Galilee um, within the um, the mainland area, uh, the inland area, uh, because it's local. And so if you look at the Roman Empire, they do superimpose a template everywhere, but the template is responded to differently in different places. And I think that in some ways allows for um, variation culturally to, to make the Roman Empire, I think, in the long run, um, more compatible to the people that are subject to it, because they can, by moving, to some degree, control the amount of Romanness in their lives, um, which I think a flexibility is, is in the long run a strong point for them. But there are limits to it. I mean, you can't revolt against Rome, because if you do, the Romans are not kind. So in terms of lessons for modernity, um, I, I, I don't want to draw too much um, from this. Sometimes it seems, again, it makes me listen to American presidents when they define Islam and they say what Islam is and what Islam Islam is not. Um, it makes me wonder sometimes if we're trying to borrow a page for the Roman game and that how do we deal with a, um, a resistance to American influence, which in the wake of the fall of communism doesn't have a political ideology to adhere to and now seeks to find a religious ideology. And so how do we as... Um, as a power, um, react to that. And so I don't want to see too many connections between Rome and America because they kind of make me decidedly uncomfortable. Um, but it's kind of fun to look for them and um, try to understand what they mean. Yeah, so thanks for that answer. I think this has been super interesting and informative, both for myself and I think it's going to be for our listeners. Um, so I definitely want to thank you again uh, for taking time out of your day uh, to talk about this because I think it's a super interesting part of history. And uh, I think there are still lessons um, that can be applied uh, today, whether it's politically or militarily or culturally. So 
Uh, again, I want to thank you uh, for coming on. Yeah, so just to conclude, uh, we just had that interview with uh, Dr. Russell, uh, which again was a super cool interview. I really enjoyed that. And again, going forward, I'm definitely going to have, I think, I'm hoping to have an interview like for every single episode uh, that we do in the future because um, I really like giving a voice um, to these historians and to these uh, professors who have so much expertise and passion um, for the areas that they study. Um, another housekeeping thing, uh, I did just start an Instagram account called History Does You. Um, so that's where, again, I'll be posting um, like different episodes and stuff as opposed to using my own social media. But right now I don't have enough followers, so I'll continue to kind of use my own social media. Um, to market this. And I also definitely encourage you uh, to tell your friends, um, family, whatever, um, because I kind of have to grow this at a grassroots level right now. Um, yeah, so I think just to follow up with the uh, interview with Dr. Russell, um, the, you know, the first uh, Roman Jewish war, I think is super interesting just because I think it's a textbook case of how the Romans kind of approach to controlling a lot of their um, empire in general. Um, yeah, so I definitely encourage you to listen to that interview, even if you don't necessarily know about. There's obviously a ton of information about there about this specific war. So if you need like more background information, um, I definitely encourage you to go um, and just look it up and read brief antidote about it. Uh, yeah, so. I think the legacy, again, of the Roman Empire is it had a very long-lasting impact, um, specifically on language in general, for example. Um, Latin uh, kind of became the core language um, throughout the Mediterranean, and obviously um, a lot of the uh, Modern language, um, or I forget what the term is, but like Italian, French, Spanish, um, a lot of just the Western European languages have their roots in Latin in general. Um, our modern day um, calendars based off the Roman calendar, um, for example, are um, some of our uh, governing institutions, the United States are based off of, um, are kind of borrowed from the Roman um from the Roman um, Empire, for example, like obviously with the Roman Senate and legislative assemblies are simpler, similar to our Congress. And obviously like our executive uh, position being president is similar to the Roman consul. So there are a lot of parallels between um, democracies and the Roman system. Obviously we have a more true democracy with every citizen being able to vote. And obviously the Romans didn't necessarily have that. Um, there's also obviously a lot of technological developments with like aqueducts um, and Roman roads that still exist today. Also with uh, Roman baths and um, homes and sewages and piping and um, all of that. I'll definitely get into like the military aspects. I think the Roman Empire was light years ahead of what anyone else was doing at the time in terms of organization, in terms of tactics, in terms of strategic innovation, in terms of being able to fight not only insurgencies but against uh, different states. And that isn't to say that um, they um, didn't suffer defeats and setbacks. They certainly did, but I think it really spoke to the Romans' ability to just keep on coming. I think, 
I think covering like, for example, Hannibal, when he continually defeated the Romans, the Romans would just keep on coming. Um, and I think same with when they suffered defeat in the Tudorberg Forest in 9 AD, they they didn't, even though they pulled back ultimately, that didn't stop them from going across the river and launching raids and stuff. So again, I think it's super interesting that I think the Roman system the Roman military system was just so innovative and still just in terms of organization is honestly even better than some modern militaries today. Um, and it's still interesting that even like 2000 years later that the Roman empire and just Roman culture and economics and all that have such a strong influence across um, governments and cultures and stuff like that. Um, I'll definitely, I think, again, there's so much history um, in this particular era that I think that um, we're going to be definitely doing specific episodes in the future about different aspects of the Roman Empire because, again, I think that I can't cover this all in uh, only three episodes. That's almost like, I don't know, like a thousand years of history. Um, there's so much in between that I think um, it would be foolish not to um, look into this um, even more. Um so again, going forward, I think every single episode, I'm going to have an interview with um, someone um, in a specific topic. And again, I just love giving uh, these historians and authors and um, professors like a platform to talk about topics that they're passionate about and the difficulties that they um, endure kind of researching history. And again, I think this is... Um, Going forward, I'm super excited to kind of just continue um, doing uh, doing this. And uh, yeah, uh, this is going to conclude our um, fourth episode and conclude our three-part series on the Roman Empire. Um, obviously, I hope this has been super informative for uh, you guys. And also, um, I'm definitely looking forward to covering uh, new topics in the future.